and welcome to episode 11 of OBS Orbit, the podcast for Open vSwitch users and developers. This episode talks a lot about P4 and eBPF. It's probably worth giving a brief introduction to both topics for listeners who might not be familiar with them yet. P4 is a language for describing the operation of a switch. It's mainly targeted at hardware switches, but there's no reason that a software switch like Open vSwitch can't implement P4 as well. Compared to OpenFlow, which Open vSwitch has implemented from day one, P4 is lower level and more flexible. Whereas OpenFlow is something like a language to program a hardware ASIC, P4 lets the user define the ASIC. P4 lets the user specify what protocols to support rather than merely allowing the use of a set of built-in protocols. eBPF, on the other hand, is more or less unrelated. It's a descendant of BPF, the Berkeley Packet Filter, which is what TCP Dump and Wireshark use to select the packets they want to capture from a network interface. Where BPF is pretty simple, eBPF, or extended BPF, is a general-purpose bytecode language, which you might compare to Java bytecode. These days, eBPF can be used by user space programs to supply almost arbitrary code for the kernel to execute. In a networking context, it's useful for in-kernel packet processing, and one possible use for eBPF is to implement in-kernel parts of a switch program written in P4 as a kind of compiler target. A couple of previous episodes of OVS Orbit have also explored projects around these two topics of P4 and eBPF. In episode 4, I talked to Thomas Graff of Cisco about Celium, which uses LLVM and eBPF for legacy-free container networking. In episode 9, I talked to Mohamed Shabazz about integrating P4 into OpenVSwitch, which might end up using eBPF to support flexible kernel-based networking. So if you need a review of any of these topics, you might want to go listen to those episodes. This interview with John Fastaban rejoins these topics. We're talking about work that John presented at the P4 workshop held at Stanford in May, titled P4 on the Edge which explored the question of whether P4 is a useful abstraction for an edge node, which in this case means a server running VMs or containers. I think that the future of OpenVSwitch is likely to involve both P4 and eBPF, so I'm happy to learn as much about both topics as possible. Let's jump right into the interview. Today I'm talking to John Fastaban from Intel. John, you've contributed hundreds of commits to the Linux kernel networking stack. I was uh, taking a, a oh, look at like? this morning. Is it in the hundreds? Or? Yeah, it's, oh, uh, cool. it's well over uh, 200 nice. now, and, and that was I hadn't actually done a, a git pull in, in quite a while, so okay. it might cool. be more than that by now. So it, it looks to me like those commits have focused in two places, the, the scheduling core of mm -hmm. the networking stack and the Intel uh, NIC drivers. Mm -hmm. Do you want to introduce yourself and say uh, anything yeah. more about that or correct sure. me? Sure. No, that, that sounds about right. I work at Intel. I was previously working on the Intel drivers. Uh, I started there working on FreeBSD, actually. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, does, so does Intel contribute FreeBSD drivers as well? Yeah, so almost, uh, I get in trouble for making blanket, blanket statements here, but I think almost all of the Intel drivers have FreeBSD counterparts. So I, I started there. Do they share code? Yeah, there, there's a, a portion of it is shared code. A lot of the sort of low-level uh, banging on the registers, um, kind of things you would expect to be shared code the managing the phi and all that kind of stuff. But then the operating system pieces are all separate between, I guess, VMware and BSD and Windows and, yeah, and Linux, of course. Um, and yeah, so then uh, after working on FreeBSD for a while, um, where I, I mostly did some validation and a few other things, I did start working on the Linux drivers uh, with the 10 gig NICs, probably starting there, where I focused a lot on the 8021Q spec, uh, got involved in and doing all that uh, fun stuff, uh, going to the IEEE kind of uh, 
meetings and all that. I've never been to an IEEE meeting, so, oh. so how does that work? I, I always expected it was a bunch of electrical engineers and I wanted to really understand what was going on. It probably is. And actually, in, in, in some places, I, I felt very out of place as they argued about, uh, you know, how to make 100 gig work or 400 gig or, or whatever they happen to be working on, at the, uh, you know, now. But in at least in the 802 and Q space where I, I guess kind of focused on, uh, we worked on a technology called DCB, which is the data center bridging. And then I later did some kind of IEEE virtualization work. A lot of that was about software protocols. So we developed, uh, I could rattle off acronyms, but a bunch of different protocols. And so I did say there were some DCB related yeah, things there. Yeah. So we did a lot of, I did a lot of that work. So um, you didn't just implement it, you actually helped standardize it as well. Yeah. Yeah. We did a lot of that standardization work. And, uh, uh, you know, go to, you, you do, they do a lot of interop testing and all this kind of stuff. So we, we did all of that. And it was, I guess, exciting and uh, contributed a lot of Linux patches for it. So Linux has support for our, a lot of the 802.1Q stuff that we did, um, which is nice. Yeah, that, that's great. So uh, today the, the goal is to talk about some of the work that you've been doing with, uh, with P4 and mm -hmm. eBPF. Uh, I, I don't know whether that's uh, something that that's planning, you're planning to turn into a product or a project or if it's just experiments. Yeah, so uh, let's see, the best way to probably attack this is, is how I got involved is about maybe a year and a half, two years ago, I sort of identified this problem that we have with Nix, uh, at least that I, I see it as a problem, is I have a thousand page spec or more at this point, right, that describes all of the features of the hardware. And there's no real concise explanation of what the hardware actually does. And so th that's kind of where I started uh, poking around at, at some sort of language to, to specify the hardware capabilities. So th this is sort of the, the P4 side, where P4 mm -hmm. is a language where you can describe what you want hardware to do and, and take advantage right. of the, the basic capabilities of it. Yeah, and I, maybe interestingly, we actually started going from the other way, is how do we specify the hardware in some kind of concise way that you could then generate test cases from and generate uh, northbound interfaces and APIs for. So, we, And that was sort of predating the P4, or kind of at the same time yeah. as P4 was being developed? Then. So one of the P4 use cases is not to uh, control your hardware, but mm -hmm. to describe what your fixed function hardware can right. do. Is that closer to what? Yeah. You're so that that was where we sort of got started on this, uh, or at least where I got started on this. And then the, from there, the work that we did was to try to figure out how to offload parts of software into hardware, which you know is something that. Uh, Intel would like to do as a manufacturer of silicon, right? And a lot of, of other folks are, are kind of looking in this area. And, and so that work kind of led into, well, how do we define the software side as well as the hardware side so we can sort of come up with some sort of uh, mechanism to say this part of the software model can be offloaded. And, and that led to uh, a tool that we wrote called Match, uh, which is very P4-like, and ex but uh, exposes the kind of control plane side of uh, P4. Uh, and we actually take that, and we, now we run that with P4 itself. So you were looking at uh, at the hardware. Mm -hmm. um, my my notes for this, I, I cribbed from your your right. talk at uh, at the the P4 workshop a, a while back, and and there. The, the big question that I think you set out to answer was, is P4 a useful abstraction for, edge, for an edge node? Right, yeah. And so since then, I've sort of gotten farther and farther away from the hardware and, and just started to ask some, I think, more basic questions about P4. Is, is can it be used to build a virtual switch? And part of the P4 conference work that we did is we implemented a P4 compiler uh, that generates LLVM IR. Code and I don't know if people know LLVM all that well, but it's it's a compiler tool chain. Uh, it supports a bunch of different backends, so you have uh, the 
kind of traditional front end would be like C, C++, and then the, the sort of traditional backends for LLVM would be x86 or ARM or PowerPC or all these other arch hardware architectures. I, I tend to think of LLVM or, or Clang as the front end that we use as uh, uh, sort of the, the, the big competitor to GCC. Yeah, I, th I think that's possibly true. It, it's at Intel, maybe you think of yeah. it as a competitor to the Intel C compiler. I, I, to be honest, I don't think of um, as sort of competitors to one or the other. LLVM was just sort of available. It's sort of a nice software package to use. It's all written in C++. It's very friendly to go and add your new pieces in. Uh, cracking open GCC and adding a new front end to GCC is a little bit more challenging just oh, yeah. from an architecture standpoint. I've heard that's a mess, yeah. <laughs> uh, and then, you know, I, ICC is is not open source, right? So it's, it's not necessarily a good target for things that you want to go and talk about and experiment with because it's more difficult to share. People don't necessarily know what you're... You can't just give them a big patch, right, when you're working on proprietary compilers. Sure. Um, so uh, uh, where where did this uh, where did this lead or, or what? Yeah, um, so what we we got is a, a front end for P4 that generates this LLVM IR, so the kind of intermediate representation from IR, and from that we have already had an eBPF backend LLVM. I didn't do that work. That was work was um, done by some folks at Facebook and and Plumgrid, Alexei, if you know, familiar mm -hmm. with him. They're pretty well known in this community. Okay, so yeah, so the, these guys did all this work, uh, um, kind of on the back end side, and a lot of the uh, Linux kernel work to support a lot of the the eBPF code in the Linux kernel. Uh, we leveraged a lot of that by just taking the P4 directly into IR, and then we can from there generate eBPF code and and run it in the Linux kernel. One of the sort of experiments was, can we, is P4 expressive enough to build a virtual switch? Uh, the other piece I was sort of interested in is eBPF as a kernel uh, uh, kind of virtual machine that's running code, uh, have enough support to implement a, a virtual switch. Okay. And sort of were successful both ways, I think. So when you say a, a virtual switch, there's uh, all kinds of different levels of, of support in virtual switches. Right. So what kind of a virtual switch did you want to build? Um, so at this point, we, we mostly looked at well, P4 is basically table-based, right? So we have a, a sort of tables. Uh, we have a set of matches. So we looked at IPv4 and IPv6 um, and a set of actions. It was roughly open, uh, open flow, kind of compatible. I mean, this was as a, kind of an experiment, so it wasn't terribly. Uh, rigid in that there's probably some things that I didn't go and check out. But when I think mm -hmm. about OpenFlow, that's that that's a very uh, sort of general concept. And mm -hmm. what you usually need to do is, if you, once you've got an OpenFlow switch, you've got to program it to do mm -hmm. something. So w were you building a platform that you could program, or were you building a, an application that, that did, right. did something specific? I think maybe what we're getting into is there needs to be some sort of runtime environment for the language, almost. And so we did two things here. One is you actually end up with eBPF code that implements some P4 spec. Uh, so some tables, some set of fields, and set of, some set of actions. The actions are, are a bit interesting. Maybe we can get back to that. But the, the matching part is pretty straightforward as far as packet comes in. And you look at this table has a bunch of rules, and they match on IPv4, IPv6, or whatever the 10 or 50 tuple is that people care about at any one time. And then the other piece is how do you actually interact with the, the tables, right? How do you program them um, and all of this? And so in eBPF has a, a concept of a, a map which is a, sh a shared object between user space and kernel space, and actually between processes in the kernel space themselves. And so we also have uh, generated a tool that, that kind of facilitates programming the tables. So it has a CLI as part of it. Uh, we have a, a, an intern of mine wrote a, a netconf plugin for it, so you can talk to it with a netconf CLI on some other system. 
Um, so it sounds pretty general purpose. Is it yeah. sort of a in, is it a general purpose in kernel P4 implementation? Yeah. So one thing as part of the goal that I, that I tried to avoid is is building a sort of a templatized version. And I know some people have gone after this, I think, and, and as a way to do it, right? You write a template up and then you kind of just populate certain parts of the template. Um, so this code is pretty much all generated in IR. There's no sort of standard objects or anything. Mm -hmm. So uh, what is, what's sort of interesting down the road, right now it's pretty pretty crude, I'd say, from a intermediate representation standpoint. That The IR it generates isn't terribly great performance-wise, but you could conceivably start to run more optimizations on the IR, generate better IR itself. Possibly in the eBPF JIT, you could do things like look at vectorization and a lot of these kinds of technologies that x86 uh, Intel processors tend to have, but also other you know, architectures that's not you know, specific necessarily to x86. So you're talking about the, when you say IR, you mean the LLVM IR? Yeah, so what's interesting, I, I think, kind of about this chain is you have the LLVM IR, um, and then you have the BPF bytecode, and so the LLVMIR is compiled to BPF bytecode, but then that bytecode is also jitted for the specific hardware. So there's also a, comp uh, a compiler in the kernel that does this JIT operation. And actually what we're seeing is now people are also building hardware JITs. So um, if you look at the, there's some patches from Netronome, for example, to take the BPF and run it inside their hardware engine. This is all sort of interesting. I think the sort of next stage for us is, to, or from, for me actually, is to, is to look at um, trying to generate better, uh, better code from that JIT engine itself. Meaning we, we have some sort of ideas about how to use vectorization and packet processing, you know, and so that's one area that we could possibly look at. So I'm not quite sure what you mean by vectorization in this case. Maybe you could spell out what you have in mind. So actually, I haven't thought about too much. So, <laughs> but you might consider using some of the AVX instructions, for example, inside oh, that Intel. Kind of, uh, yeah, that kind. Okay. Yeah, so that that's one uh, one operation. The the other one would be to start bulking packets. So right now, BPF runs on a single packet at a time. Mm -hmm. We kind of have. Some experiments that show running on uh, groups of packets at a time can provide benefit. That's sort of another area that we would sort of kind of, we would probably start to look into. I'm really curious about the idea using AVX. Mm -hmm. Would that be for uh, for processing a single packet, or AVX would look at multiple packets, or I, I don't know that yeah. much about it. Yeah, so, you know, one thought would be, uh, and this is just a thought, we haven't looked at it, would be to say um, if you have a 512-bit instruction um, which some of the new AVX stuff has, you could sort of pack a, a full IPv6 address plus a Ethernet plus you know some tuple that's that long, um, and since it is wide enough, you can fit actual you know the dest IP address or something in there, and then do a single instruction to compare on it, um, rather than do this load store load compare um, kind of parse graph. Um, one, one thought that we, we've sort of had there is if you know most of your traffic, for example, is IPv6, it's, it's possible that you could just kind of pretend that it's IPv6 until you learn that it's not. Okay. Right? So like load all the fields up and then do the compare. And if the compare doesn't work, well, then it's something else and you can kick it off into some slow path because it's probably a control packet or something right? that's not uh, IPv6. Or, um, In other words, fast path, the common case. Yeah. Uh, what would be interesting is uh, what the next thing then is, so how do you tell the compiler that this is the fast path? And then you need something in P4, like a likely statement from C or something that would kind of tell you what the, opt uh, what the most likely uh, parse graph kind of looks like. Or you could do it with statistics or something, right? Which would be even more interesting, I think. 
EPF seems like a, a interesting place to start talking about things that are, are, are very specific to a particular architecture. Yeah, it's interesting because, I mean, so EBPF is, is kind of generic, right? It's this instruction set that doesn't have a lot of the specifics, but we could certainly look at adding some of this stuff, and people have started to poke around in that space. It, the, the interesting piece uh, that I see is because you have the just-in-time compiler there at the bottom, you have the opportunity to know what the CPU is. And this works even when you're in an environment where you're deploying across kind of multiple CPUs or you're building a package ahead of time and then adding it to your distribution, right? Most distributions don't send you a custom-built binary for your system that runs optimally everywhere because they want it to, I mean, they want it to run everywhere, so it kind of can't use the best uh, known configuration for every specific CPU. Right. I, I think Debian only recently uh, uh, stopped supporting uh, 46 CPUs. Right. So, <laughs> so the, the, the JIT there, the JIT being there, is sort of interesting in that in that world. I think because you have the opportunity to have one binary that works on all sorts of things. That's kind of interesting. I had always thought of the JIT as being kind of a disadvantage because uh, you, you can't um, uh, invest all the time that a compiler uh, normally would take. Mm -hmm. But you're, you're pointing out that it can possibly specialize it better to what it's actually running on. Right. And then, I mean, these are sort of uh, ideas that we haven't looked too closely at, but kind of future work that we're getting into now. now. But, um, you know, you, you could imagine that the compiler that has all the time could pass hints down to this JIT, and the JIT could somehow interpret the hints for whatever specific target you happen to be, you know, JITting onto. Right. I wonder um, if there's anything to learn there from the Java community, because presumably they've been doing this sort of thing for a long time. Yeah, Java, um, there's a Lua JIT too, which is, I think, I haven't looked at myself, but it's, it's supposed to be, I think, fairly good. Then, um, on the other hand, they're usually doing things that are less close to the hardware, so... Maybe it, I, I don't know whether right. all the lessons would apply directly. Right. Um, yeah, so that's the JIT side. I think even generating, even if, even if you take the JIT out of it, just generating really good P, um, assembly from P4 is perhaps interesting as well. I haven't seen too much work in that space yet as far as specialized P4 to target kind of compiler work. So. Just to sort of go through the, the workflow mm -hmm. of how you use this, I, I think the first step is you write some P4 program, mm -hmm. And then you run your tool to convert that P4 into, it, does, it, does it convert into C or does it convert it directly into LLVM bytecode? It generates directly into LLVM. Okay. IR. So we, we skip the C part okay. in this case. And then the, the bytecode, that, that's something that's actually stored in your object file on disk. Mm -hmm. And you, you load that directly into the kernel on a particular network device using TC, is, mm -hmm. is that? Yeah, that's the, the flow. And, and then when a packet's received on that device, it gets turned over directly to that program? Currently, in the kind of available stable Linuxes, it actually gets passed into the stack first, and then the stack runs the program. There's a, a new kind of project called XDP, which stands for Express Data Path, I hope. <laughs> I could have that wrong, but I believe that's what it stands for. I should know. <laughs> but that would actually run it in the driver itself, and so that would be another interesting target for this, for this sort of work. Um, the advantage there is you don't have the overhead of building the uh, SK buff, which is the sort of OS abstraction for a packet. If, if the packet actually goes into the host, though, you still have to build the SK buff, so it just kind of depends on the workload and how we optimize the stack going forward for these kind of use cases. Right. Um, so when I, I, I talked to Thomas Graf okay. uh, about oh. this uh, several episodes mm -hmm. ago, and one of the questions I asked him was, if most of the packets actually get delivered to the OS somehow, mm -hmm. what's the advantage of XDP? I, 
So his, his answer was that, in, in fact, in, in data centers, you're mm -hmm. always under attack, so there's a lot of packets right. you just want to drop without mm -hmm. sending to the OS. Right. Do, do you have a different philosophy? or? Uh, I, I think it's definitely good for that. So building firewalls, and it's got that kind of use case, makes a lot of sense. Uh, and another thing that, we're, that I'm actually interested in looking at is if you have this sort of logic in the driver, and then we also have a bunch of other users like vhostnet, which plug into QEMU, so your packets are directly going into user space anyways. If, if there's no reason to build the SKB because the stack's not going to do anything with it, and then just take that operating system representation of the packet and then translate it again into a QEMU representation of a packet, it's possible we should probably just go directly from the driver directly to the user space representation of it. Oh, okay. So there mm -hmm. are some cases where the packet is not going to the operating system and it's not being dropped, but you can take advantage of, of skipping the SK buff. I, I, I believe so. So right now everything goes to the operating system and the operating system turns and hands it to QEMU. And, and this works for kind of a virtual machine world. But uh, if there's nothing happening in the OS, so there's no IP tables or which are, you know, no OS-based firewalling and no stateful stuff going on in the OS, then we can presumably just go directly into the uh, QEMU world. Sure. And presumably there'll be some benefit, but you know this is again kind of future work. So it sounds like you've actually built this or prototyped it. So uh, mm -hmm. what what kind of uh, applications uh, have have you experimented with or have you implemented? Primarily, we are looking at implementing some of our hardware and software. So that, that's sort of an interesting case because now you have a software model of your hardware. So so people, at least people, some of my colleagues have found that interesting and useful work. The the other thing is we sort of taken some sort of standard. P4 programs, and you know, we have a load balancer that I kind of cooked up, and uh, um, was, I, have, I was meaning to get to a connection tracker, but we haven't quite got there yet. So, so just sort of standard things. Nothing. We, I wouldn't say I have any particular application in mind. What kinds of limitations do you see to, to an approach like this? Yeah, so this is an interesting one. So P4 is interesting kind of when you contrast it with sort of an instruction-based model, right? So P4 is uh, kind of has this architecture where you have a parser followed by a bunch of tables and you populate the tables uh, and you might call into actions at some point in the actions um, well the, the actions are what the tables uh, per, uh, execute right? yeah so you match on something and then based on the match you call some action right and this is sort of one model of computation or, or network processing right and then another one I, I think would be sort of the ebpf world where there is no kind of strict notion of, of tables or parser it's, you have a set of instructions, and from that you build, build something. And, and this sort of shows that the P4 can be kind of pushed down onto this instruction set model. I'm not entirely convinced that you can go the other way. Oh, that would be um, harder. <laughs> and so I, I, put it, I, I don't think you can go the other way efficiently. It's probably true that uh, you can encode arbitrary logic into tables as, as, you know, if you have enough of them. Well, here's maybe a more specific question. So you yeah. mentioned a connection tracker. Can, mm -hmm. can you implement that in bare P4, or do you need to yeah. use a special helpers? So where we were going with this and what, what the code that we have right now is we encode it as an action. Okay, uh, so there's an action that you call connection track. Yeah, and you call connection track. That runs out to the action. The action is its own block of LLVMIR in this case. Could be written in C or some, some other language, not P4, and sort of linked in. And then when you load it into eBPF, it looks just like any other action we call off into the here's this block of, of uh, BPF code at that point. So the connection tracker is implemented in BPF, or it in turn calls out to something external to the eBPF? I would like to implement it directly in BPF. 
but this is the connection structure is one thing we haven't done, so it's it's hard to oh, say okay. where the actual um, problems would lie. I know people are looking at doing this now to see if it's feasible, but we I haven't tried to do a connection tracker yet. Okay, so yeah. everything we've been talking about here is is, is kernel based, but right. Intel is obviously highly uh, involved with DPDK as well, yeah, which is right. all in user space. Right. Can you see eBPF and 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 P4 that kind of model uh, um, being useful in a DPDK environment? Right. So certainly a P4 model to me is useful in D, in a D, in a user space model. eBPF is a little more interesting. It certainly could be done. That's not the problem. And I think. People would probably argue that it's valuable in the fact that I ha if I have a bunch of BPF programs, it's useful to be able to run them anywhere, right? So you want them to be compatible. The, the question in my mind is, do they need to be eBPF bytecode kind of compatible or compatible at the LLVM IR layer? And if they're, if they're compatible, it, P4 generates LLVM IR like our prototype does. The backend doesn't necessarily have to be eBPF. The backend could be native x86 and, or whatever PowerPC or whatever your architecture is. And that could be in turn run in the right type of runtime environment for DBDK or NetMap or any of these guys who have user space. Uh, in, in other words, compile it to native code, just run it right. in the normal way inside. Yeah, the so the, the question I, I have, and, and people I think would argue with me that, that, that it makes sense to have a BPF uh, interpreter in user space as well. And, Think that's probably true, but the question would be: Does it? Do you really need to go through that JIT process if you're already running user space? You know your target. You can just run direct. You know, generate the code directly for that platform. The reason we go through the kernel um, in the kernel, we need to because of we can't load arbitrary instructions and in, into the kernel. We have to go through this verifier, which knows about BPF. The verifier does a lot of good things, like verify we're not going to panic the kernel or do something. Um, Kind of for, security for issues. Basic safety. Right. In user space, you already have that to some extent, right? Because you're because you're in user space, and there's the ring zero and ring three and all that. Have you tried doing any sorts of performance tests, and, and um, what, what do you expect? Yeah, that's that's a good question. So we haven't done a ton of performance at the moment. It's all been fairly functional testing. Uh, I think we've got to the point where we can show reasonable functionality is 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 possible, and performance would really be the sort of next next step for us. We, we sort of know that BPF instructions can run fairly fast. Uh, they're not really the bottleneck at this point. The bottleneck seems to be getting I.O. in and out of the BPF programs themselves. From, from my sort of inference from that is that, you know, the the, our program shouldn't be the bottleneck. Okay. When we load them there, but you know we need to do that. You, sort of you mentioned testing. something earlier about mm -hmm. the optimization of the IR itself. Mm -hmm. I would have guessed that LLVM itself was pretty good at that. Do you, do you see that as an obstacle? One of the reasons I targeted LLVM IR is so that I wouldn't have to write all my own optimization passes. Right. And so the LLVM itself is really good at optimizing the LLVM IR. I think what is interesting from a P4 standpoint is you learn a lot. Uh, you have a lot of context in the P4 standpoint. Like this is a parse graph. Here's some tables, and I kind of know the I know how the packets are going to flow through this pipeline. That there's I think there's an opportunity to have P4 specific optimizations. The the other thing that I, I found that happens is if a user writes really bad P4, you get sort of bad IR, <laughs> and LLVM IR isn't going to save you because it has no idea to know that this is coming into a parse graph and you've duplicated branches all over the place or something, right? Like your graph is really bad, badly written. So I haven't mm. seen enough P4 to, to judge what's good and what's bad. What's an example of something that would be bad P4? <laughs> so at this point, I, I, I would say you can write parse graphs that have 
are unnecessarily large. Okay. Right? And, and this generates, because we sort of faithfully generate the LLVMIR in this, from that graph, we then generate a bunch of unnecessary loads and compares in, in, in the code. So this, I think the simplest one to tackle would be to just do some normal graph optimizations on the parse graph itself and prune it down and, and make it kind of compact and minimize the nodes. And so there's an upcoming like uh, P4 2016 uh, that right. used to be called P4 1.2 right. uh, that, that's coming up with a, a revised compiler. It sounds like mm-hmm. it'll have some optimization passes and so on that are yeah. generic. Yeah, so that's, that's really interesting um, for this work. Uh, you know, one thing that we're debating right now is if we should take this uh, sort of prototype that we have working and and, and contribute it to that port P416 compiler, um, which which I would really like to do. It's just a matter of, of time and effort, yeah. right? It's, so it would become one of the backends of right. that compiler, one of the targets. Yeah, and I think it would be nice because uh, that compiler itself supports the software model that they have for it. Uh, they call it B- BMV or BVM. Uh, I forget the acronym, but there, there's a software switch for it that runs in user space. So behavioral model. Behavioral model, yeah, that they run. It would be nice to have at least another model that's sort of open source that anyone can freely have that isn't, it's, that is a slightly different model just to have more than one thing running. Sure. Is, is someone at Intel, or maybe you are, uh, participating in the P4 design work? It would be great to have more people providing uh, feedback from a software point of view. Yeah, so I'm, I'm on the... I'm on the mailing list, and I go to the meetings. I kind of lurk in the background. I um, just like me most of the time. Probably, yeah. It's it's one of those things that I that needs to kind of get moved up. I think on my list of things to do. I, you know, I review the spec occasionally, and but the amount of time it takes to do a good review is we should just yeah, need to make time for it. <laughs> yeah, um, and the software point of view, it isn't often different, but sometimes when it is, it makes a, a big difference. Like the philosophy on on checksum. Uh, uh, generation right. and verification is quite different. Right. And uh, the other one that, that I've, the, the kind of two places that I, I've been meaning to do a kind of a more thorough review would be um, the actions are slightly different, I think, because you can just kind of generate new actions. So um, maybe this is not a problem from the spec standpoint, but it's definitely uh, interesting, I think. I've honestly been paying most attention to the parser part of P4. Right. I find that to be the most interesting part. Okay. There's also, I think, a runtime question that we ran into on the software side on, on whether we should run to completion or we should try to pipeline the model. It would be interesting if maybe there was some sort of way in P4 to specify that. Otherwise, your compiler is going to have to make a decision for you. Um, so what do you see as the, the trade-offs there from a P4 point of view? And, and maybe we should just step back and yeah. explain to the people who are listening <laughs> what we're talking about. Yeah. So there's sort of at least two models. So there's probably tons of models, but there's there's at least two models that I know of for, for sort of doing network processing. And, and one is is to stick a big load balancer in front of the, and the ingress, what, the ingress port, packets. whatever it is. And then every time you get a packet, you run until you figure out what to do with the packet, and then you send it out a port usually. And this is sort of run to completion because in a software model, it's it's run to completion on a single core. In contrast with a pipeline model where you might have the single packet being passed between a whole series of cores, each core doing a very specific uh, task. Um, and if you look at something like DBDK, DBDK actually has support for both models. Um, so there is some data to show um, 
you know, in some cases this model is better, in some cases that model is better. I've, I've always mm -hmm. had a dis, uh, sort of an instinctive uh, dislike for the one where you pass it between mm -hmm. cores, just because my experience is that the actual passing of, of packets or, or of other data structures is expensive in itself. Right. But I, I guess that not everybody has that, that reaction. Yeah, and I think this is, you know, before, before I came here, I kind of thought that it might be a question that would come up, and so I was trying to dig up some some research or some papers or something to see some data on this. And you know, I found some data from ten years ago or so. So, um, <laughs> well, this isn't an interrogation. <laughs> oh, I know, but it, it seemed like something that was kind of fundamental, and there should be some uh, some research out there to sort of highlight when this is good and when this is bad. Um, but I, I'm convinced that somebody knows the answer to this, but I, I, my intuition is kind of similar to yours on this, that it seems like the, the task that you're doing has to be sufficiently expensive to warrant the message passing uh, protocol itself, or the message protocol has to be so lightweight that it's that it doesn't close enough to zero, right? That it doesn't matter. So th this is interesting. Uh, it's interesting in the context of some of these new devices that have hundreds of cores. You know, we have FPGAs, you can spawn these things up, or you have uh, these Xeon um, 5s or NPU, GPUs or something, so. Yeah, a lot, mm -hmm. of, uh, lot of interesting things coming up. Mm -hmm. So uh, what are you working now on now, or what's the next step for this work? Yeah, I, I think the, the next step I, we touched on here is performance is a big one. So I think we want to just kind of do a performance benchmark, see where we're spending cycles in the kernel, see how fast we can actually make this run. Um, the, the other one is, I, I'm pretty sure the bottleneck is is not going to be the BPF vSwitch. It's going to be getting data into uh, the VM or container or something. So there's some work there that we'd like to do in the next few months to optimize that that path. And the other thing I'd like to see is if if we can generate interest and people are actually going to use this code, I'd be you know I'd be really happy to to kind of get it in that P416 compiler we had uh, we were talking about. And so if there's a there's a place for us to live, then that's that's kind of the next thing I would probably go off and work on. It's, it's probably at least a few months of work to make that kind of from a prototype and port it over and all that good stuff. So who do you see as the, the crowd that's most likely to be interested? VMs or containers or, or, or some, something else entirely? Appliances? It's a good question. I, I'm not entirely sure. You know, I mean, we, I was thinking sort of most of my thinking is along the lines of containers or, or VMs. So service chaining is, is one. Some of my, my colleagues, mm -hmm. yeah, some of my colleagues are very focused on this model. Um, I must admit, I, I'm sort of down in the, the bottom half of this side, and probably you can tell by this discussion, right? Um, so I'm kind of down in the kernel and down in the compilers and things. So um, most of my use cases come, come from looking around and see what my colleagues are doing and stuff like that. Sure. Are you uh, paying attention to the other work that's going on with, with P4 and, and eBPF and, and, and Linux? Maybe not. What oh, other work's oh, going on? Okay, so I've I've done a couple of other episodes with okay. people who are are, are working on uh, related things. Yeah. So uh, back in episode four, I talked to Thomas Graf yep. uh, over at, at Cisco, okay. who's working on uh, Celium, yep. which is a, a, a container networking yep. system that's legacy free and IPv6 right. only, and yep. it also uses LLVM and, mm -hmm. and eBPF, and I. Uh, he was talking about XDP, the yeah. same thing you were. Um, do, do you see uh, any uh, relationship there? It's not P4 based, but it's... Right, uh, right. Yeah, no, actually, Thomas and I, I talk occasionally as well. So yeah, I, I'm aware of his work. Um, you know, since we're all kind of playing in this BPS space, we're sort of all touching the same kind of low-level code. You're probably all running into the same bugs. Right, yeah. So it, from that standpoint, it really helps to have more people, you, you know, 
working on BPF, working on LLVM in this kind of space because we get kind of a nice solid back uh, back end to, to sort of implement. I think his work was more sort of from the orchestration side. How do you scale this up, you know, kind of wildly into a bunch of nodes if you if you don't have a legacy to worry about? Um, we're we're kind of taking this from a DSL standpoint with P4, so so it's kind of a domain specific language is you know is what P4 is. Um, I I think kind of in a similar vein. Like I, I've also looked at some of the soft switch work that Ethan was doing. I think you interviewed him. I didn't mm-hmm. listen to it. I saw it though. But um, I mean, he he raised a lot of the same questions that that we we've ran into with doing actions. It's like how do you um, do you recirculate every time or you know, all how, that kind of stuff. How do you do stateful stuff and combine right. it with OpenFlow? Yeah, and I think that's sort of interesting because the, the P4 is sort of not stateful by definition. Well, it, it does uh, have stateful elements that you can use, the registers and meters and... Uh, and yeah, that, okay, so that's probably too strong, yeah. It, it does have stateful elements. It, it seems tricky to me to write in, uh, something like a connection tracker inside P4 language itself. I agree, yeah. Um, you know, it's the two models, this, this table-based model versus this sort of instruction-based model. So. And, and then the other one that I had in mind is uh, um, something that, that I've been working on with uh, Mohammed mm-hmm. Shabazz. Uh, I interviewed him back in uh, episode nine. So we're, we're trying to uh, integrate uh, P4 into uh, OpenVSwitch, mm-hmm. and that, that's likely going to, for the kernel side, uh, involve eBPF mm-hmm. uh, uh, as as the, the the target for for P4. Right. Um, what do you think we should learn from from what uh, what you've uh, what you've discovered? Um, I, th- I think the, the the big thing would be is the proof point of like kind of an existence proof that is possible. Mm-hmm. So I think that's like, that was sort of what I set out to show, and I, I think that this work kind of validates that it is possible. Um, the um, the other one is that uh, it would be interesting to think about if you want to use LLVM as a, as a compiler tool chain in, in something like Open vSwitch versus kind of roll your own. I think there's a lot of benefits that, that I've seen from using LLVM. I mean, you get the entire tool chain. You get all the optimization passes for free. Um, you get the loaders that load the code into, um, into the kernel. So you get a lot of, lot of uh, things for free. I guess on the, on the flip side, that means you have another package that you have to kind of track and manage. So there's always the trade-off between writing your own and being tightly integrated and then having, or, or having a lot of kind of good code on the side that you have to somehow you know, kind of uh, coordinate with, right? Yeah, um, I, I have this instinct where I'm just sort of allergic to dependencies, mm-hmm. but sometimes that's a mistake. Yeah, you know, I, I mean, LLVM is fairly stable, and like I said, it has a lot of good uh, of these optimizations path. It, it's sort of hard to, it's hard to, at least for me, it's hard to convince myself to redo a lot of that work. Of course, um, it's a philosophy. It's, yeah, it just depends on on how painful the integration is. And so, is this something that, that people can go out and, and look at? Have you uh, have you made it public? It's it's not public yet. Um, is, is Some versions are of it. I, I have no reason not to make it public. Mm-hmm. I, should, I, I can make it public in the next couple of weeks probably and post it. Oh, great. Just on GitHub. It won't be official in any way. It'll just be um, kind of prototype code, but sure. it might be useful for people that want to take a look at um, how to generate LLVM code from P4. Sure. So uh, for, for now, uh, what's the best way for people to find out more? Um, send me an email, I guess. I, you know, I'm right. usually f- pretty fine talking about it. I, um, 
And I see that your uh, your slides were are online from the, the right. P4 presentation a couple of months ago. Yeah, so go go there. You can look at the slides. Um, send me an email or uh, right. otherwise. And uh, the best it, way. As long as we're already on the topic, what's the best way for people to get in contact with you? Probably email as well. I think I, I usually read my email every day, mostly unless I'm out, um, but pretty much always. So all right, um, shoot me an email and. Um, Great. We can we can chat. You... I'll I'll put I'll put that in the show notes. All right. Great. Cool. Uh, so uh, anything else you want to add? Uh, no, I think it was was fun talking about uh, about this stuff. It's sort of exciting, and I like to talk about it. So oh, I feel like it's been a good conversation. <laughs> Thank Great. you. Great. Let's talk again sometime. All right. Thanks. OVS Orbit is edited and produced by Ben Pfaff using Audacity audio editing software and released under the Creative Commons Unported 3.0 license. The intro music in this episode is Drive by Alex Barroza, the bumper is Yeah Ant by Spec, and the outro is Space Bazooka by Kirkoid. All of the music is also licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution 3.0 Unported license. For more information about OpenVSwitch and OVS Orbit, please visit openvswitch.org.